Welcome to another edition of Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show. I'm Anthony T. In this edition, I will be having another edition of this bleeping wrestling promotion. As it looks like Vince McMahon and Bruce Prichard are taking over NXT. Which is not a good thing. I'll have my thoughts on CM Punk returning to wrestling. And how excited I am for it. Because... I'm a really big CM Punk fan. Then I will have a interview with writer-director John Powers as we talk about his latest short film, War Dog, which deals with an interesting topic that's not seen in the horror genre. It's a very interesting short film that I really think people should check out, as I really like the fact that, that this touches upon a real-life subject that doesn't get talked about in horror films definitely check that interview out and in what's anthony t watching i will talk about a film that was shot next door to the great state of rhode island and stars a legendary scream queen playing a dj once again that's the hint i'm giving you about the film if you get that hint you know who i'm talking about and you know what film i'm talking about but first, the news. Let's start off with remakes that we do not need. As it's full steam ahead on James Wan's adaptation of Stephen King's Salem's Lot. As James Wan is producing the film. As the film has found its Ben Mears. As the Hollywood Reporter has reported that Louis Pullman, who was seen in The Strangers Pray at Night, will star in the film. He will be playing the lead character of Ben Mears, who returns to his childhood home, only to discover that his hometown is being taken over by good old vampires. Now, we really do not need a remake of Salem's Lot, quite frankly. As there's already been, I think, two versions of this film already, but I'm going to give you some advice James Wan on how to not do the remake. There's like two things that I do not want to see in this remake. I know I'm resigned to the fact that we are getting a remake of Salem's Lot. First thing I do not want to see in this remake. I do not want to see any foreshadowing at all. The beginning of the original Salem's Lot was horrible. Seriously, it gave away the film in the first five minutes. It pretty much tells you who survives in this film by just spotlighting the characters in Guatemala. I could never figure out why the screenwriters chose Guatemala to be in the beginning and end of that film. Seriously, because it made no sense with what was going on. It's just, I don't like my films being given away to me in the first five minutes. And that's what Salem's Lot does. It foreshadows. You never foreshadow if you're writing a horror film. Because if you foreshadow, you're pretty much giving away the film. It only works in certain circumstances. It does not work in the original Salem's Lot. So I do not want to see any foreshadowing in this remake at all. If I see foreshadowing in this remake, I'll be pissed off. Because you did not learn from the original Salem's Lot. You never foreshadow your characters. And second of all, this is the most 
important thing that James Wan should not do ever is to have this film shot in sunny California, Maine. That's right. Do not shoot this film in California at all. Please do not have this film shot in California and use Maine as a backdrop. Because that film did not look like Maine at all. Pet Cemetery looked like it was shot in Maine. Because it was actually shot in Maine. That's where Salem's Lot should have been shot. Not sunny California, Maine. Because really, I do not need to see how great looking a film is. If you're going to shoot this film, shoot it in Maine. Or shoot it in a town that looks like it is Maine. Not in California where everything looks so beautiful. But then again, it's great to be in sunny California, Maine. Definitely check the commentary track that I was a part of with the Dead Kids of Derry. As we did both part one and part two of Salem's Lot. Shameless plug. But back to what I was saying. I do not want to see any foreshadowing. I do not want to see this film shot in sunny California, Maine. I don't want to see this film shot in a sunny place. I want to see this film shot in a town that looks like Maine. Or in Maine. If this film is shot in sunny California, Maine, or has foreshadowing in the beginning, that will be an automatic deal breaker for me. Seriously. I do not need to see all the mistakes from the original film in this remake. The remake is supposed to make the film at least better. I hope this is a better film. Don't get me wrong. Salem was, not, was a good film. I don't consider it a great vampire film because it has foreshadowing and it's shot in sunny California, Maine to the point where it's a running joke. Do not make this film like a running joke like the original Salem's Lot. Please, James Wan. I know you can do this. You've done it with all your other films. You made your films very dark. You can do it with Salem's Lot. Please, I do not want to have to be throwing comments at the screen or ha having being told that these are the characters you should only care about or enjoying nice sunny California, Maine. On to other news here. Now, here's a topic that I have not talked about in quite a while. Seriously, I have not talked about this topic. He is the most talked about topic on this podcast even though AEW and CM Punk are getting up there as the most talked about topic on this podcast. But that's a different story. You know who I'm talking about. It is none other than Jason Blum and Blumhouse Productions. That's right. Jason Blum and Blumhouse have a new film coming out. It is supposed to be a big film. And it is a film that you will not see in theaters. Instead, it will debut on Paramount+. Plus. Really? This is a big movie, even though it is not going to be hitting theaters. I am talking about the upcoming Paranormal Activity reboot. That's right. We are getting a reboot 
or a reimagining of paranormal activity. Seriously, I am a big fan of the original paranormal activity film. I can't wait to meet the stars from the original paranormal activity film when they come to CT Horror Fest in about a week or so. But to find out that this film is getting reimagined, I don't know what to think about this. Seriously. First of all, this film is being premiered on Paramount Plus, which makes me nervous because it may be toned down. Because with streaming films, you don't know what to expect. Netflix, you know what to expect. You can expect whatever the director's vision is. Paramount Plus, I have no idea what to expect. Seriously. I don't even know if this film has a rating from the ratings board yet. I don't know if this film's gonna end up being like a TV movie, which I hope it isn't. Because seriously, if this film comes off as a TV movie, I am not gonna be happy, quite frankly. But then again, we needed a reboot of Paranormal Activity. The original film came out in 2007. It's what, 14 years since the original? And we're already getting a reimagining of this film? It's not like we're getting a reimagining of Halloween, I Know What You Did Last Summer, or Scream. We're getting a reimagining of Paranormal Activity when the film came out in 2007. That's 14 years, people. Seriously. Shouldn't there be like a 30-year limit before you can reimagine a horror property? Like Candyman, for example. That came out in the 90s. So it's been around for like over 20, 25 years. So you can do a reimagining of that film. But to do a reimagining of a film that's only been out for 14 years is kind of soon. Seriously. And the thing that I'm really worried about is the film is going to be toned down because we haven't heard any MPA rating for this film. But on the plus side, it's being the screenplay is being written by Christopher Landon, who wrote the screenplays for Happy Death Day and Freaky. And it's being directed by William Eubank. So, I don't know what to think about this. Seriously. According to the Blade Disgusting article on Paranormal Activity, this is being described as an unexpected retooling of the franchise, reportedly continuing the tradition of taking a found footage approach. I don't know what to think about this film. Also, to go along with the film, this is going to be a brand new documentary. I have no idea what this documentary is going to be about. Is this going to be about the whole franchise? Is this going to be about this film? I really hope it really isn't about this film because that would be a complete letdown here. So I don't know what to think about this new Paranormal Activity reboot or reimagining. I really don't know what to think. I've seen no trailer. I've seen nothing on this film. I really hope there's some sort of trailer going into this. As I really don't want to go into this film blind, quite frankly. Because if I don't get no trailer for this film, I really don't know if this is going to be a successful film. Because seriously, we're getting close to the release date on Paramount Plus for the Paranormal Activity. 
Activity Reboot. And we also got a documentary too. Even though it's coming out this Halloween, there's no concrete date. And we're already in September and there's no date for this film. I do not want this film to debut like the way the Cloverfield Paradox debuted without no warning. We all know what happened with that film. That was completely awful. I'm a fan of the Paranormal Activity franchise, but I would like to, at least in the next week or two, see a trailer or something on this new film because it would be nice, quite frankly. I just don't like films just dropping out of nowhere because how can you build interest if you don't have a trailer? And we're already in September and this film is due this Halloween season. So, I hope this is trail soon. Seriously, Jason Blum. That would be nice. Please, Jason Blum, at least give us a trailer for the Paranormal Activity Reimagining. And stop spending your time promoting Halloween kills. Seriously, I would like to see something of a trailer or something about this new Paranormal Activity film. Because right now, I am not excited for it, quite frankly. It feels like it's going to come out of nowhere. And that's not a way to promote your film. Seriously. I'm going to take a quick break. Then we'll have wrestling news. Including CM Punk to AEW confirmed. And another edition of this bleeping wrestling promotion. Besides Anthony T's horror show. You can also listen to these other fine podcasts. On the Doc Discussions Network. Doc Discussions hosted by Phil Perone and Michael Darwin. You Know Nothing, Jon Snow, a Game of Thrones podcast. Bullets, Brothels, and Bots, a Westworld podcast. Halloween Boutique, Psychotronic Reviews. And Searching for American Gods. You can find Doc Discussions on the web at www.docdiscussions.com. And Doc Discussions is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. Welcome back. Now, should I start with CM Punk's AEW debut? Or should I start off with another edition of this bleeping wrestling promotion? I'm feeling kind of positive today, but maybe I should save the positivity towards the end, because why not do another edition of this bleeping wrestling promotion, or what WWE has done to make me so pissed off. And it has to do with NXT. You do know NXT has a new logo, A lot of people might know NXT is the black and gold brand of WWE. It also stands out. But the good old boys in WWE has taken away the identity of NXT. Because there is no more black and gold logo that made this brand synonymous with All wrestling fans. In fact, all the great things about NXT is going away. So they decided to rebrand and give you 
probably the worst logo in the history of wrestling. The color scheme is just so horrific in this new NXT logo. This like splashes of blue, splashes of orange, splashes of green, splashes of dark blue, splashes of red. What is this? A wrestling show? Or something that is being produced by the Nickelodeon Network? Yeah, you know Nickelodeon? Who has had programming such as Doug and Rugrats and Ren and Stimpy? Yeah, that's what the NXT new logo looks like. Something out of a Nickelodeon television show. It is so... Horrific. You might as well just add the people from Sesame Street. You might might as well add the people from Paw Patrol as well. Or PJ Mask. Why not? Because this is just so childish. This logo is horrific. A wrestling promotion besides its work rate is also identified by its logo. AEW's identified by their logo. Gold, black, white. WWE Raw's identified by just red. SmackDown just by blue. But NXT, it's a variety of colors. What the bleep is going on? I don't get this bleeping wrestling promotion. Seriously. It's bad enough they are changing NXT to be a developmental brand. Now you're going to throw all these splashing colors and that's your new logo for your TV show and your brand. I'm sorry. I just, I can't fathom watching a show with all those colors. And before you say AEW Dynamite has all these flashing colors, that's the background, people. Not the logo. The logo is what I just told you. Black, gold, and white. WWE NXT is just a bunch of variety colors. It makes you think you're watching a kid's show. What, they're going to get voice actors to come out to NXT? Seriously. This is the worst idea for a logo. If this wasn't worst enough about NXT, guess who's taking control of NXT? It's two of the most hated people in wrestling. Yep, Vince McMahon is going to produce the repackaged NXT. That is just great. Now he can bring his negative energy onto a third show. He's already yelling and screaming at everybody on Raw because they can't come up with scripts. Now he's coming over to NXT to run the show, taking it away from Triple H. This piece of news is coming from various news sites, including WrestleTalk and Bleacher Report, as they've also said in the Bleacher Report, article that Bruce Pritchard will also be around to produce the show as well. This is just so stupid. Come on. We do not need to see Vince McMahon and Bruce 
Pritchard run every single brand. But it looks like it's happening, folks. All because Vince McMahon is paranoid at this moment. That's the only reason why we're seeing these drastic changes in NXT, people. McMahon is paranoid and angry at Triple H, too, because of AEW. And, well, after doing the same shows and the same booking philosophy for years and people rejecting it, what do you expect was going to happen? There was going to be that day where another wrestling promotion came on to the scene and tried to challenge WWE. We're here, folks. As AEW is challenging WWE, and their answer to AEW is to run the same stupid philosophies that worked 10, 15 years ago. And to have the same people who we criticize about Raw and the same people we criticize about SmackDown now taking over the NXT brand. And this is definitely going to hurt in the ratings. Watch. It's enjoying a nice bounce right now. But check with me two, three months down the line. Because I'm telling you right now, ratings will be dropping. Because when people find out that the show is just developmental, nobody's going to watch. What made NXT special was the fact that the show was different from Raw and SmackDown. Now, folks, get ready because NXT will probably be like Raw and SmackDown in two, three, four months' time. Watch. Because that's what you get when you have Bruce Prichard and Vince McMahon running your show. The same repetitive things over and over again. Enough with this bleeping wrestling promotion. Let's move on to something positive. CM Punk to AEW confirmed. On the August 20th edition of AEW Rampage, CM Punk made his AEW debut. It was a long time coming. Seriously, there was like rumors ever since... The beginning of AEW, there was this running gag that CM Punk was going to AEW. Now it's officially happened, thankfully. It was going to be very tiring, as some sites would always report that he's, oh, he's coming to AEW. But thankfully, it's finally happened, in probably one of the worst kept secrets in the history of wrestling, because... Let's face it, you're not running the United Center if CM Punk ain't going to be there. So it was very good to see him come back. This was an amazing reception he got at the United Center. Because literally, it's probably one of the best receptions I've ever seen a wrestler get. It also helped he was in his hometown of Chicago. But still, that was a major moment in wrestling because CM Punk hasn't wrestled in seven years and he's about ready to wrestle his first match in seven years against Dobby Allen at All Out which may have taken place already depends on when this episode comes out but still it is great to see CM Punk back in wrestling 
and back in a wrestling ring. Trust me, I am a huge CM Punk fan. This goes back all the way back to his early days in Ring of Honor. Because if it wasn't for CM Punk, maybe I would not be a wrestling fan today. Seriously. Because I would probably never discover the Ring of Honor if it wasn't for CM Punk. Because I remember discovering this promotion after hearing about a wild match that Punk had at Ring of Honor. It was like a tag match with Ace Steel against BJ Whitmer and Dan Moff. At Death Before Dishonor 2 Night 2. And the infamous chair riot that took place during that match. Literally, it was a spectacle beyond belief. If it wasn't about hearing for that match, I probably would not be a CM Punk fan or a wrestling fan for that matter. Because, quite frankly, around that time, I was starting to fall out of wrestling until I discovered Ring of Honor and Total Nonstop Action at the time as well. But, especially Ring of Honor. Because if I did not read the websites and found out about this infamous tag match that included fans throwing chairs into the ring, I probably would have never checked out Ring of Honor. And in fact, probably be out of watching wrestling right now. But I'm glad I found this match. And this is one of the matches where I almost instantly became a CM Punk fan. It was just Insane to see. It is probably one of the wildest matches I've ever seen. Literally. You do not see fans throwing chairs into the ring today. But back in 2004, this stuff was happening. It was such a surreal moment. And probably one of the most surreal moments I've seen in wrestling history. I've seen a bunch of surreal moments. But that's probably one of the most surreal ones. Fans literally throwing chairs into the ring after the wrestlers started throwing chairs into the ring. It was such a chaotic scene. And literally made me discover CM Punk for the first time. And quite frankly, I think it also made me discover Ring of Honor. In return, maybe love professional wrestling for what it is. Not what... WWE puts out on a daily basis. But back to his return, it was such a great sight to see. I'm very happy to see that he's back in wrestling because I really think the business needs CM Punk right now because with fans coming back to arenas and the fact that the wrestling business needs a shot in the arm, it is great to see that CM Punk has returned to wrestling and signed with AEW. Because right now, it's going to make AEW a major threat. And I keep saying this. WWE needs to pay attention to AEW. They can't be doing the same things they've been doing for the last 10 years. And think it's going to fly now. It isn't. But it was great to see CM Punk back in a wrestling ring. I really can't wait to watch his match against Dobby Allen at the All Out pay-per-view, which may have happened by now or may have not. And oh, by the way, I will be doing a positives and negatives on AEW's All Out next episode, so keep an eye out for that. 
And that's the news. Hey guys, this is Stephen Christina. I'm the founder, owner, creator, and host of Super Retro Throwback Reviews. Are you looking for the best movie reviews, music reviews, video game reviews, and Comic-Con coverage all around? Well, then look no further. Definitely check out Super Retro Throwback Reviews on YouTube and our new audio podcast, the new and improved Super Retro Throwback Reviews Audio Files version 2.0 on the following media distributors. Podbean, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. Class is over, John. Time for something new and improved. Every day there's a family struggling with hospital bills to care for this sick child who is fighting an illness. There's a woman who is fighting breast cancer and is having trouble making ends meet while paying for their treatment. And there are burn victims that are going through treatments to heal their deep wounds. There is a charity in the horror community that helps these people. Scares That Care is an organization that helps families deal with the bills for their child. They help women get the treatment they need to fight breast cancer. And they help people who are dealing with severe burns get the help they need to heal. Scares That Care is a 100% volunteer organization and 501c3 nonprofit charity that is dedicated to helping these people in fighting real monsters. To find out more information or to donate to Scares That Care, you can go to www.scaresthatcare.org. Every donation helps Scares That Care fight real monsters. Welcome back to Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show. My guest this episode is a writer, director, who is mostly known for the cult action film Street Asylum, starring Wings Hauser and G. Gordon Liddy. Today he is here to talk about his award-winning film War Dog, which can be found on the SoFi streaming service. I'd like to welcome John Powers to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Anthony. What made you get into filmmaking? Well, my background was in drama. That's what I had studied when I had gone to school. I live in Los Angeles, and, you know, to really progress in theater would meant going back to New York, but I didn't care to do that since all my roots and family were here in L.A. So I began writing and for film and television, and I developed a, a name for myself as someone who could quickly rewrite the work of an existing project. I would usually work for a director or producer who was looking to get a project financed. And this was how I began my career. And it was in that regard that led to the uh, production of the film Street Asylum, which is now, you know, quite a few years old. But that's how I began. I, you know, continued to work in that field as, as far as I mentioned primarily as a quick rewrite screenwriter, but I had difficulty getting another film going, and so I moved back into the field that I had studied in, which was in drama, and I presented, I was uh, I worked as a consultant presenting performing arts for a number of years at a cultural center in Southern California, but beginning six, seven years ago with the tremendous disruption taking place in film and television, I saw the opportunity to step back into that world um, because I, as a writer, could now assume different positions 
I could not only uh, uh, direct but produce my own work. And that's what led me to produce the work that you know, I have on uh, before the world today, um, War Dog. Now, besides writing screenplays, I noticed in research you like to infuse current events in your writings. What made you mm-hmm. want to infuse current events into your screenplays? Well, one I, part of it was that I grew up in a very turbulent time and a very turbulent part of Los Angeles, so I was never far removed from what was happening on the streets. A second reason is, as a writer, I'm always looking for um, relevant content. And there is the um, recent American history provides a tremendous amount of content, either directly or indirectly. And so I incorporate a lot of the things that I've either lived through or have witnessed or read about but have experienced uh, just through my own life, and I bring that into the storytelling because I'm presuming that the people that I'm drawing in as an audience also have an interest in this kind of content. I'm not, I'm not an, if you will, I'm, even though some of my work is pretty extreme, I'm not an action writer. I try to find stories that relate to people that we can easily identify with in our own lives, um, our own experience. And they're not reaching out to these heroic moves. They're um, the kind of actions that you and I and people that we know in a daily life would, would carry out. I noticed in your filmography that you've only directed short films. Why do you direct short films instead of feature films? Um, it's a, a natural progression. I will be moving into uh, feature films very soon. I wanted to be able, because the production as well as the direction, um, and just him working with a crew was new to me, having been away from um, film production for a number of years, but had been involved, as I said, in performing arts, but coming into the filmic arts, I wanted to maintain a sensible control over the project that I was producing. Also, the funding for these projects, you know, were fairly limited, so I needed to keep the scale controlled. War Dog was the first of these. There have been two subsequent uh, projects that I've produced, one entitled Angel's Ladder and another, a third picture that will be coming out of post-production soon called Nina and Simone. And this allowed me to get a, a firm grip on the not only the directorial, but the producerial responsibilities that I have before me. But I feel quite confident now that I can move into feature-length material and being able to draw financing to assist with these, cognizant of the fact that it's very difficult to find uh, a place to place a place to position these finished products that will get a return on that investment. So I will be, even though they will be feature films, they will be at a very modest budget because the kind of return that we'll be getting from them from the various platforms will be very modest at this time. So I'm trying to maintain the control of these works because I'm looking forward to producing 
um, not just as I've been doing over the past several years, but for uh, many years into the future. You have a short film called The War Dog that is currently playing on the SoFi streaming service. Tell everyone about that film. Mm -hmm. This is a story about a father who is seeking to welcome home his daughter, who's a veteran, from what I refer to as the war zone. Now, in a feature-length version of this story, it specifically is, and ironically to mention it now, Afghanistan. And neither he nor this young woman's friend are prepared for what her experience in the war zone has done to her. Now, we're familiar with the concept of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, in our veterans. We have so many of them that are being treated in VA facilities, and so many veterans, as you are aware, are taking their own lives because they have not been able to cope with the damage that has been done to them in the war zone. And what I do in War Dog is to take that a step further, that what this woman has seen and what has been done to her, even though we don't see that on the screen, we see that it has brought a monster out in her. And she is cognizant of this monster, and she's trying to keep herself and those loved ones from seeing this monster. But when she is stressed, that monster just erupts, and destroys whatever is in front of her without thought. You know, she is not thinking this is someone, you know, she's not killing out of malice, she's killing out of self-defense. And what we see in War Dog, in essence, comprises the second act or the middle of a feature-length story, which I've written, yet not yet produced. In the first act, we see what has happened in the war zone. In, in the produced short here, we see when she tries to come home and fails so horribly at it, and the third act follows her where she goes after this. And it allows me to, just as an explores a very important issue that our society is and has been facing, which is the post-traumatic stress on our veterans, whether they are male or female, and what those families are experiencing when their son or daughter, husband or wife, come home. And we're expecting that the person that we sent off is the same person. Uh, the person that comes home is the same person that we sent off, and it, it is not that case at all. What gave you the idea to focus your story on those effects? As you know, as you had asked me earlier, it's me picking up as a, a writer, as just a person in our, our our society today, the issues, the serious issues that we are facing. And this issue of post-traumatic stress disorder among veterans is enormous. And while you and I may not be experiencing it, because I'm not a veteran, but I have friends who are, I have friends who are working for the VA in this area, and they describe the enormous, the enormity of the problem. But as with, you know, we send off a very small percentage of our population to go fight these wars. And when they come home, we forget about the people that have been fighting them and the effects on them. And I wanted to bring that to the surface in a genre story. You know, we see how within this normal young woman who looks like she should just, you know, just reintegrate herself back into her family with her friends and her community and everything should be good. And that's never going to happen because something has been triggered within her 
and it's not going to be solved. And this is what I, as a, as a so we, we're so, as a nation, we're so quick to go off to war without acknowledging the costs of that war and the long, uh, the, the long history that that cost will have. Did you spend any time with these soldiers before writing the screenplay for War Dog? Um, not with uh, a veteran herself, but with a, a therapist who are working with veterans, in particular, um, therapists who, with, through the VA, who are working primarily with female veterans. And this won't surprise many of your listeners. So much of the trauma that our female veterans are experiencing is not out in the field against the enemy. It is behind the wire with their peers. You know, there's a tremendous amount of sexual assault, sexual violence that takes place in the military, both at home in uh, stateside, in bases, as well as in the bases that we have you know, scattered around the world. And that's what I learned a great deal about from uh, discussions and reading that I had with therapists who are treating these veterans today. What was the screenwriting process like, given the complex nature of this film? I'm a pretty experienced writer in dramatic material. That was, as I mentioned at the outset, that was my background, my education. And I practiced it quite extensively in the beginning of my career. And I was, as I may say, quite facile with creating strong, unique characters and being able to put that on a page. And so when I conceived of this idea, it came pretty quickly to me. And what I've learned through the production, though, is the importance of the editing process. You know, you we filmed this, we're pretty economical about that, but the telling of the story becomes much more nuanced during the editing of the film. And I sat alongside the editor of this film, uh, shaping the telling of that story. So while I may you know, have... Uh, I don't, I, don't, I don't tend to overwrite, but even with the writing that I do, you can, you can reel it back in. You can continue to pare it down to just a, a fine essence of, of action and dialogue. So the, rather than the, I say that the, the writing process, it was the editing process that was a, a learning experience and it enabled me to help shape this material to where it's become the the picture that it is today. Now, you use a uh, werewolf-like monster as the trauma mm -hmm. that the main character is going through mm -hmm. with the teeth and everything. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to use those elements mm -hmm. for the changes that your main character is going through? One, it was a given that I wanted to write a, a genre picture in which if you will, the monster within was unleashed. I needed to find something simple that an audience would immediately gravitate to. I tried to avoid, you mentioned, you know, I was certainly very sensitive to this, the a werewolf idea. Because when you do that, then you buy into the whole werewolf uh, uh, mythology and uh, of a full moon, and it lasts all period of time. And what we have here is a, a new character, if you will, as I 
entitled a picture, War Dog, in which this beast within this person, and I dare say a beast that exists within any human being, if, if traumatized sufficiently, it will make, it will bring out a monster within us, a monster that is a relentless. It, it doesn't matter who or what is in front of it, it will defend itself. And only after killing what it perceives as a threat does it stop to look and say, oh my God, that was a loved one. And they just frightened me unnecessarily. But to get back to your specific point, it was how can I portray this simply and yet effectively in the, you know, the minimal range? You know, as you may have seen from the, the credit list on, on War Dog, I worked with a very, very small footprint of uh, a film team here. So we had to be able to create these effects and continue to deliver them during the production period. And by using the, the teeth, um, without any other change in this character, able to convey the sense that this was a canine beast that was unleashed within this person. I noticed for almost the entire film that your main character is wearing earbuds. What made you decide to have your main character wear that during the course of the film? And does that represent a symbol or something? I'm, you know, it's interesting you raised that, Anthony. I'm not sure I'm the person to answer whether the use of earbuds, you know, leading into a device, whether it be a phone or some other uh, music player, whether it's symbolic. But from a pragmatic point, this character is trying to keep herself in a neutral state. And she is always wearing these earbuds. And we think, or we make the presumption, that she's listening to some music that's keeping her focused. And, and at that moment, and of course this is going to be a spoiler, her friend pulls that earbud away and listens for a moment. And she says, this is just static. You're listening to white noise. This character is continually listening to white noise to keep herself in a neutral emotional state so that this beast within her does not erupt. And it's only when she feels threatened that this thing comes out. So the, the use of the earbuds, I guess it was part of the whole uh, creation of this character, how this character has figured out how to keep herself controlled. And it's by just playing white noise continuously into her head. Another thing that I liked about the screenplay is you focus on the main character's relationship with the people in her life and how she becomes distant from them. What made you want to focus that along with the trauma that she is going through? Most emotional drama is about a character's relationship with family, close family members, as well as friends. And so that's the most natural place to go to. You know, when we look at an action picture, let's say, you know, you take a, a hero or a heroine, and they are often in conflict with this unknown person, someone they have no relationship to, it's just a, 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 an evildoer. And they have to figure out, why is, why is this person coming at me and, and the whole thing? Whereas what in most effective dramas, you see the conflict is with someone whom they love and want to reconnect with. But when there's been a significant change, as obviously has happened with this woman here, if you will, she's trying to come home and she can't come home. She'll never be able to come home. And we see what happens to her when she does. She kills out of panic everyone that's close to her. And so these deaths that are happening 
are so meaningful to her. You know, she wants to, you know, find that warm embrace that she left, and she'll never, ever have that again. What is it like getting funding for this film, as this deals with a topic that isn't seen in many horror films? Well, this was self-produced, so I did, you know, I produced it, you know, uh, I produced it uh, with SAG on what they call a short contract, so I kept my some of my talent costs down that way. I went to several close friends who have known my writing in the past to ask them for financial support. And then I carried the balance, you know, just in, you know, good old credit card debt until I got that paid off. And so it was a, you know, it, I, I tried to keep the, the cost contained with uh, some investment here. And, you know, I was able to, to manage that. And so that, if you will, I put on my producer's hat for, for that and was able to, to keep it, keep, keep those costs controlled. But as I said, you know, I, some of it was coming from my own pocket and from the pocket of people who have supported my work in the past. What was the casting process like? I have known a number of professional actors, so I went to a couple of them, and by that I mean specifically the actor who played the the Uber driver or the Lyft driver we see at the beginning, Paul Link. And Paul turned me on to John Posey, who plays the father. And two of my male leads came very quickly. I had a relationship with the woman who played Tita, that is the longtime housekeeper with the um, uh, the family here. I used a, a, a casting service that is well known to independent producers called Breakdown Express to locate the woman who played the lead. And what I was looking primarily in my... Uh, actor here, and I found it with Katya Gurst, is someone who could do the physical stunts that we had to carry out, the various attacks that took place in the movie. And uh, Katya had uh, done a number of these, and so in my interview process with her, I've, you know, it's funny, I've done a lot of casting primarily for the theater, live stage, and so I feel very comfortable in in talking and directing actors. And I usually engage with people just by having a conversation. I tell them about myself, I tell them about the project, I ask about them, and I develop a conversation. And I learn through that, is this someone who is listening to me? Is this someone who is comfortable to suggest things to me? Hey, John, you know, that's interesting, but how about if we do this? I'm very open to that. And I found, particularly with Katya, because this is someone who went outside of my circle of actors to bring into this project, and you know, she made a number of excellent suggestions that I incorporated in the production of this. What were some things in the audition process that made you want to cast Katya? Well, you know, she, she, you know, she, she's a lovely young woman. And she has a wonderful sense of humor. And this won't surprise you just from our conversation. You know, I'm a pretty thoughtful guy. I think about what I'm going to say before I say it. And when I'm on set, 
you will, or whether it's theater or film, I, and particularly when I have a pro- producing responsibility as well as writing and directing, I'm carrying a lot of responsibility because I'm also looking out for the safety and comfort of both the cast and the crew. So there's not a lot of humor and jokes coming from me. Mind you, I'm also, I'm not an explosive personality either because that's so detrimental to the creative process. But it is so helpful to the whole set environment, the creation environment, to have actors keep the set light with their own humor. So I know in talking with Katya, my, my conversation audition with her, is that she would bring a wonderful tenor to the, uh, to the set. And I knew that was also very true of Paul Link, the actor who, as I said, played the Uber driver. In, in, the, in the project right here. And so as long as I have actors around that can keep the, the set light, we do really well. I knew that I'd be able to get that from, from Kaja when I auditioned and spoke with her. What's the toughest scene to film? There were two. Um, one of them is that that takes place in the bedroom when the housekeeper comes up to discover this, this girl who she looked after all her life and the attack that took place there. And in the process of that, she loses her cell phone. And the loss of that cell phone becomes a key element of discovery later in the story. And it was my DP, my cinematographer, who figured out a very simple way of having the housekeeper lose that her cell phone, which she's carrying in her hand, have it get lost in the bedroom, and yet not be obvious until later. The second difficult scene takes place with her friend when they are out at night and you're sitting on that bench and her friend who obviously has an issue with alcohol and she's drinking, has been drinking, and loses her balance. And again, I didn't have the the means to show that full collapse so I had to start at the beginning and then go to the end. And again, it was my DP who figured out a very simple way to go from her drinking to the discovery of her having fallen and cracked her skull. And so it was to the credit of my DP that we figured out how to solve those crucial storytelling elements within the story, within the movie. Was there any scene in the film you wish you had more time to film? You know, um, actually not, Anthony. You know, the only thing I would do, uh, the only thing I would like to do is do the feature-length version of the story. Um, if I was to do the feature-length version of it, I probably would reshoot some elements of what we see right here. But, you know, it, you know, we're talking uh, a picture that's probably going to cost, you know, in the neighborhood of a million and a half dollars. And that's a very difficult to, right now, that's a very difficult number to raise because um, anybody who puts that money up is going to say, well, where are you going to, how am I going to get that money back? And because of the nature of streaming, the loss of DVD sales, the loss of uh, other ancillary uh, income, it's hard to make a reasonable argument that that kind of picture without major cast elements can make that make that money back. So for the near future, I and many other independent filmmakers are going to be making movies that are at 
the, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25,000, maybe $35,000 level. And because you get above that range without significant cast elements, it becomes very difficult to earn that money back through the, uh, the systems that we have today. And, and also to the fact that there, uh, you know, there's just so much other product out there that the, uh, the streamers can choose from. You know, where so many independent filmmakers are finding revenue and where I eventually hope to place a war dog, as well as my other work, are, are on some of the advertising based uh, streaming channels right now. So I know I took a, I kind of veered off from answering your, your, your question there a little bit about, but it gives you a sense of what independent filmmakers are considering when they approach any project at this moment in time. Because we've seen the whole filmmaking uh, environment, independent filmmaking environment, change so much during the past three to five years, not just technologically, uh, uh, but also from uh, the distribution level and the consumption level for audiences. And that's had a profound effect on where uh, revenue is coming back to to repay the cost of these these projects is war dog still on the festival circuit yes it is i have it with a number of festivals that are playing and it's it's actually done quite well and where it's done very well recently is in europe uh, recently it was a finalist in in rome and in madrid and in berlin and so i'm very grateful to these international uh, film festivals that it has been so well received there, and so my that's where my attention in I'm not I've never gone too widespread with it for festivals, but I do selectively place it where I think it will receive a, a good a good viewing, and I've certainly found very favorable audiences in Europe, uh, particularly those in the major European capitals, very cosmopolitan areas. So obviously the individuals who are serving on these film festivals, you know, find a, a resonance with the theme that I'm exploring my film. So I'm very grateful for that. Do you have any upcoming projects on the horizon? Um, another a project that I produced uh, two years ago called Angel's Letter has also been in the film festival circuit. But I also will be attempting to place that on Sophie TV, a streaming platform specifically designed for short uh, films anywhere from 10 minutes to 45 minutes. My usually land at about the 30-minute category, so it's a good place for it to be. I will place it there, and uh, that also has received a great deal of success on the film festival circuit. And as I mentioned, there is a picture which is just coming out of post-production now. It is called Nina and Simone, and it follows the, uh, the story of a black musician, jazz musician, who is haunted by the ghost of his manipulative mother, but he has found his true calling and his true family leading the singing careers of two white women, identical twins, and he loses contact with them during a period of social disruption and, and plague. But I'll let you know about that, uh, Anthony, to share that with your, you know, your, your audience as well. That will will soon be released. Um, so I'm very excited about those those two those two projects, Angel's Ladder and Nina and Simone. How can they find and your information about them is on the website. How can they find information on 
your film War Dog and other upcoming projects? My website is hogos.com, and that's H O G O Z.com. And if any of your audience are interested, they can go there and they will see separate pages for for each of these projects to learn more about them. And you know there are trailers as well and information about where they can view them and also to get in, in contact with me if they like. Um, that's the simplest way, just to go to Hogos. And at that Hogos uh, page, at that Hogos site, you know, there's also links to the, the Facebook uh, connections that I have as well as email connections that I have. But that's the simplest way for your audience to, to find out more information is, sim- is to go to hogos.com. John, I want to thank you for coming on to my podcast. Anthony, it's been a pleasure to be with you. I really thank you for your interest in this. And I hope that your audience is uh, informed by this and that they are interested to, to pursue this a little bit further and to find out the more about the themes and uh, the story that we've been discussing. So I appreciate that very much. Uh, have a good day and good luck with the success of War Dog and your upcoming projects. Thank you, Anthony. They're coming to get you, Barbara. This is Carrie. This is Billy. This is Mr. Poe. And we are from a podcast from beneath. You can catch us every Wednesday wherever you find your favorite podcasts. You'll find Anthony T's Power and Wrestling Show on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Instagram, and Slasher app at Anthony T's Power and Wrestling. And on Twitter at Anthony T's Power. You'll find new episodes on DocDiscussions.com, major podcast providers, and YouTube. Anthony T. watching? Well, in the beginning of this podcast, I told you that the film was shot next door to the great state of Rhode Island, as this film was shot in Connecticut, and starred a scream queen who plays a DJ once again. The film that I'm talking about is 10 Minutes to Midnight, starring Caroline Williams from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, where she played a DJ in that film. Hence, the fact that she plays a DJ again. The film also stars Nicole Kang from the TV series Batwoman. Now, this film was released late last year, and quite frankly, if I saw this film last year... I would have put this film in my top 10 films of 2020 because this is such a very good vampire film. Now, for those of you who might not know, I love vampire films. I'll see any vampire film, even the upcoming Glenn Danzig Death Rider in the House of Vampires. Let's face it, I love vampire films. So, wanting to see 10 Minutes to Midnight was a no-brainer after reading about this film. Synopsis, I had to see this film. And this is a very, very good film. I have to admit, this is a probably an original vampire film. 
quite frankly. As this film has elements of a David Lynch film, it has elements of the Twilight Zone. Now, this film literally starts off as a basic vampire film, even though you don't get to see the main character of the film get bitten. That's right, the film starts off with the character going into the radio station already been bitten. I kind of liked it. Now, normally, I might not like that, but I kind of like that, actually, because it makes you draw your own conclusions to how she was bitten. As this is a very different vampire film, and you will definitely see it from the start of the film, that this is not going to be your normal, typical vampire film. And that's what I think I liked about 10 Minutes to Midnight. It was original. It was something different. It was a different type of vampire film. And a lot of the credit goes to co-writer, director Eric Bloomquist, as he really does a great job with his direction here. I like how he takes a very serious tone to the material that he co-wrote in this film. I liked how he tries to be inventive Instead of trying to be the typical vampire film where you have a vampire in the film picking off characters one by one. I liked how he does not go that route. Instead of focuses on his main character throughout the film which really helped this film. As I'll talk about the screenplay in just a second. I like how Eric Bloomquist does a very good job keeping this film moving. As this film really moves at a good pace for a 72-minute film, he makes sure that he keeps the focus of the film on the story and not try to overdo it with the action and everything. As this film is more of a character study, if anything, because the screenplay really focuses on the main character a lot. As he and co-writer Carlson Bloomquist do a very good job in keeping you focused on the main character throughout the film. I like how they do a very good job focusing on the fact that everything is falling apart in the main character's life. How she's beginning to lose it with the fact that she's getting older and the fact that she is losing her job. I thought those aspects are handled very well. The screenwriters also really do a very good job in creating some good moments in this film, including the final climax of the film, which I won't talk about. There's also a very good scene in the middle of the film, too, where she's talking on a phone to a mysterious woman. I won't give away who she's talking to, but it serves as a nice metaphor about what the character is going through and how everything is changing. I also liked how they incorporated elements of David Lynch-esque films and elements of The Twilight Zone as it really made this film stand out. It's hard to do for a vampire film to stand out, but this film does a very good job standing out by using these aspects and also starting the film without seeing the main character get bitten. I thought that was another really interesting choice that made this stand out. This film also has a great performance by Caroline Williams, as she really does a great job in the lead role here. As she still proves she can headline a film and carry a film like she did it with Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. 
She does a great job playing the aging DJ who's finding out she's been replaced. I liked how she brings energy to the character as it makes the character interesting. And it also makes the dramatic scenes, especially in the middle of the film, work very well. She proves, still after all these years, that she can lead a horror film. I would like to see more of these scream queens like Linnea Quigley, Kelly Maroney, Barbara Crampton to headline these films. As they still can bring it after all these years and still garner attention and make the material that they're given entertaining and make their performances very good. This is a film that really proves that you can still hire these Scream Queen actresses from the 80s and 90s and put them in a lead role and they will still make the film very good. Just look at Barbara Crampton's last film, Jacob's Wife. In this film, for example, as 10 Minutes to Midnight is just a great film. I think it's one of the most original vampire films I've seen in a while. It's definitely worth checking out. There's only one downside to this film. It was short at 72 minutes, but it's probably for the best that this film is 72 minutes, given the weird tone that this film takes on during the course of the film. Definitely check out 10 Minutes to Midnight. It is a great vampire film, and I have to say one of the best indie vampire films I have seen in quite a while. Check this film out, either on VOD... DVD or Blu-ray, you will be guaranteed to like this film, and you will be guaranteed to like Caroline Williams' performance in the film. Next episode on Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show, I will be going through the positive and negatives of AEW's All Out. As that pay-per-view is looking to be one of the biggest pay-per-views of the year. As the bill for this pay-per-view is very good. I am so excited to see this. As this is looking like it's going to be one of the biggest wrestling events of 2021. I will talk about that next episode. I will be working on getting a guest as well for the next episode. On Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show on YouTube, I'll be working on getting a video up between episodes, hopefully. No guarantees, but I'm hoping to do that. With that, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other major podcast platforms don't forget to follow the podcast official social media pages you can follow anthony t's horror and wrestling show on facebook instagram and the slasher app at anthony t's horror and wrestling and twitter at anthony t's horror i want to thank you for listening to this episode have a good day support indie wrestling and support indie horror